welcome to the Commune Podcast. Here we are for part two in our discussion of the Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword. This time, we'll be taking a look at the level design of the dungeons. With me today are Greg and Daniel. Greg, how are you doing? Alright. And Daniel, how about you? How's life treating you? Yeah, life's treating me very well. Uh, although I've got a bit of a cold, so maybe not that well. Ah. Uh, Alright, so we're going to just hit the ground running and talking about the dungeon design in Skyward Sword. First thing definitely want to cover are the all the unique level elements in the dungeons that aren't in previous games or dungeons in other Zelda games. And Daniel, you brought up quite a few earlier, so I'm going to leave it to you here. So there's a few different ways to move throughout the environments in Skyward Sword's dungeons. Um, <clears throat> so for example... Uh, in the fire sanctuary, and I think maybe in the earth temple as well, maybe um, you can uh, you can use your arrow, slingshot, or beetle, or even the whip to knock down the little bulbs of water onto onto the lava, and that'll form a crust, and then the crust will follow the wave, uh, it will follow the flow of the lava, and so you can use that to slowly move through environments. And it's interesting because, you know, the movement's quite slow. And so uh, at the start of the fire sanctuary, I think it is, there's like this, like this kind of curved um, right angle and, uh, and the crust you know, moves quite slowly. And then you've got these, um, these uh, bobbikin arches just up the top who are, <clears throat> you know, who are trying to um, um, uh, sort of flank you. And so I thought that was quite funny how like on the cross it's been quite slowly and you're quite uh, vulnerable, even though they are, you know, relatively easy enemies to beat. So that had a bit of a personality to it. Um, in the Fire Sanctuary, wait, no, sorry. I, I keep confusing the two. In the oh. in the Earth Temple, there's also that, uh, that circular ball, which is very similar to uh, something in uh, in Mario Galaxy, where Mario can jump on top of the ball and then walk around the environment. So, you mentioned that uh, there is that memorable opening segment with the archers shooting at you in the fire sanctuary. Just a um, small note about tuning: the archers don't lead their shots, so um, you know it's moving quite slow and your hitbox is not uh, overly thin, so there's a chance that they can still hit you even though they're not leading their shots, but they're also... They just don't take your speed into account, so they can also miss pretty often, too. Um, and I guess uh, like another sort of movement that you can make through the environment, uh, through the environment which is quite unique, is also... In a number of the dungeons, especially the ancient cistern, there's so much water, and unlike in the previous Zelda games, you can actually move through water quite fluidly. And so, you know, again, that's another way that you can move through space, um, especially you know when you swing the Wiimote and you can, um, you know, sort of uh, flip through on the water, like sort of do a spiral kick, um, <laughs> which is really cool. And then you can even use that spiral kick to like um, it to launch yourself out of the water, you know, sort of like a dolphin, and then land onto a higher platform. So, um, although it's not like a new um, sort of game element, well, I guess on the water is a game element. 
but it's um yeah you know that's another cool way that you can traverse the environment right yeah it was still something in uh majora's mask with zora link and the zora suit in twilight princess of course i'd also uh like to add that um that method of swimming where you point the Wii remote uh, where you want Link to head that is I feel like the term for that is theme and variation where that method of travel is introduced with the bird at at the opening of the game and the variation so like the the base theme there is that um, you control its heading by pointing the Wii remote and the variation is that you flap to uh, gain altitude, um, and then that's carried through with different variations in the beetle swimming, and um, I think that's it. I don't think I'm forgetting any other form of point and go. Um, to the lesser extent, the skydiving. Yeah. Okay. Because you do you point yourself, except you you. You have to hold it more flat as if you're holding Link's body instead of the head pointing forward. You know, that's super interesting how, like, all of those um, all of those um, actions, they all follow a very similar style of input, but they're contextualized in a different way, and so they feel fresh simply by way of that... Um, um, of that contextualization. And I didn't... I hadn't even... Um, made that distinction, Greg. So, and I guess by doing it in this way, each so like the um, so riding the what are they called the the sky skyloft no the birds what are they called loft wings loft wings yeah so like riding on the loft wings is basically training for swimming in water etc uh, etc et and the learning that you take from one context applies to the next, and that's really clever. I think what's also cool is how each of those are, well, we're still on the topic of unique elements, but um, each of those are still implemented in dungeons in one form or another, minus the bird. The bird's the only one that you don't use uh, for a dungeon, which bringing it up now is kind of disappointing, so I wish I didn't think of that. Uh, (laughs) Well, you do get the... uh... The boss fight with the the not windfish. Yeah, I forgot its name already. Um, the not windfish, and actually, there's a, there's a couple of neat islands outside, so we'll give a credit there. At least there's still those that use the bird in a cool way, just not in a dungeon. But yeah, the fire sanctuary. There's that part where you have to skydive into the tongue, one of the statue's tongues. So that's oh like, yeah, like, incorporating the skydiving into a dungeon. There's, well, the beetles actually used quite frequently throughout the dungeon, so all those neat little caverns and crevices for the beetle to fly through uh, in order to either hit unique targets, grab things to drop a bomb to blow up something else. Uh, and, yeah, actually, I feel like there's another one. Oh, and of course, just like grabbing rupees and other goodies and all that. Uh, all cool stuff. And,. The last one, which was swimming, uh, most featured in the ancient cistern uh, dungeon. There's also the um, in the Anaru mining facility. There's also like the go karts as well. 
There's a, 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 a the mining carts that you can move <laughs> along. <laughs> go Sorry, I just really like the idea of the go kart now. <laughs> yeah, Alton Murray Kart Eight, so <laughs> you can, <laughs> you know, there's that. Um, <laughs> and that's interesting too, actually, because that's similar. Again, there's all these parallels, aren't there? Um, so the mining carts in the mining facility are similar to the to the lava crusts in the fire sanctuary in that they move quite yeah uh, in that they move quite slowly and therefore um you can be flanked by enemies in this case um when you in that main hall in the mining facility um you've got the bemos um you know they will you know as you're moving past you know they will begin to fire their beam at you and so you have to like block that with your shield i think and so that's quite yeah it, it's another parallel between the different uh types of movement it was bemos and i think the the little flying robots that shoot missiles at you and then they shoot other smaller robots at you sword slash i forgot what those are called when you say the cart do you mean the um the platform that you push by blowing on the uh, little dealy at the top. I can't even remember that. Um, so that that, that strikes, strikes me as quite a bit different, different from the lava crust because you have more control over the the blowable platforms, and you can kind of use that to very slowly dodge or uh, advance on enemies. Yeah. Mm. So just to remember. Or at least, uh, I guess, just to clarify, there was in the linear mining facility. I think I think it had both, but I remember the carts were actually featured more outside the dungeon, just in the regular uh, linear desert. You yeah. Know, the carts that move because yeah, right. of the time shift stone moving it forward, because they're in the the past, which is more futuristic. And then there was also the ones that you blow with the gust bellows, but those were more at your control. To put those in context of level design um stuff like the um the lava crust and the blowable platform uh just by their design are stuck on a single track and so put you in more linear uh level setups whereas the boulder that you walk on and the swimming are more open to free three-dimensional traversal mm-hmm mm. And even with swimming, actually, there's it's more 3D, isn't it? Well, yeah. So I guess the the ball is technically 2D. Yeah, you could think of it more as like a top-down 2D. Well, I, well, actually, no. I think with the ball, though, you know, because the enemies are sort of slightly above Link, you know, because their bats sort of floating around Link, and then they all uh, and they'll swoop to attack. It's sort of like there's a punctuation of 3D space. You know, so that is, you know, they'll swoop down and then you have to attack them and then you have to you know, be able to read those little um, linear pathways through 3D, uh, you know, through the vertical space. So that does add an extra bit of uh, you know, recognition of vertical space, but uh, that's different to being able to actually, you know, um, move vertically. Yeah, I guess to put it in a better way than saying it's uh, top-down, 
2D is just to say that uh, you can't freely move on the y-axis as you could underwater. Mm, yeah. That's a better way to put it. Mm. Um, and since we brought it up, one of the most easily the one of the most unique elements in the game is the time shift stone. Oh and yeah. There's quite a lot that they do with that, from activating the minecarts to turning on electric fences or and or removing the barbed fences two different kind of fences they got going on there to turning on mm. the machines the conveyors and as such especially in the sand ship in the lower section to pat these like i guess you could say these landforms that emerge out of the ground from the quicksand oh yeah that is yeah. another cool one and you can some of them you can even just like go on top of them so that or another really cool like 3D maze going on there. It's uh, like, um, I guess the uh, at this point the trite comparison is is that if you think of the Dark World as layered level design because it repurposes the same structures, then the Time Shift Stone is like uh, a dynamically layered level design where the layer changes based on where some uh some movable game object is mhm yeah yeah and, super organic and one of the cool things is i distinctly remember a a puzzle where you had to position it in such a way that it turned on one gate but not the other <laughs> and then you would run across the quicksand into the area where the uh, electric fence wasn't set off so that's one difference between what's the difference between that and just turning the whole thing back into the past it's like that puzzle right there that is the difference and there are other also other puzzles i think one in skykeep where you had to do the same thing you had to position in such a way so that it didn't create a landform in front of the target that you were trying to shoot at oh yeah yeah i just like to use it to um kill enemies with uh, with old age <laughs> that's yeah that's a funny one too and <clears throat> so this sort of phase based design you know there's I guess there's two versions like there's that really dynamic um, uh, um, object-based state change. And then there's also like the more um, on-off switch-based state change in Skyview Temple with the water levels as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Where at some point, I think the second time through, I can't really remember. I haven't, you know, played this game since last year, but the... You know, you can change on the water. Um, you can change the water levels at one point, and that gives you access to different areas. And that just changes the state for the whole, for for multiple rooms in one go. And it's not based on the location of a particular object. And that's more of the sort of traditional um, state change um, dungeon design in, like, say, in the Water Temple in Ocarina of Time. To be more specific. Um... And the first hub room in the Skyview Temple, um, the water level starts pretty low, 
and there's a block leading to the exit and um, your goal is basically to raise the water level so that you can uh, put the block in place to walk over to the exit um, and so you travel through the two different spokes um, you raise the water level once in each and you also end up with a small key I think uh, to get through uh, finally to the next hub Mm, yeah, and so those uh, there's actually one memorable moment in that that hub room where you raise the water level once, and that opens up a different path um, inside that little hub room, so that you can progress forwards. That the the water level has different states that open different paths that then uh, roll forward into more water and more paths. Another example of the. Uh... What Daniel had brought up is within the ancient cistern. So unfortunately, I didn't remember the example I was about to bring, so I have to present it here in post-narration. With the ancient cistern, phase two would be when you open the way to the carp's mouth after getting the whip. A major part of this phase is understanding the relationship between the statue and the chest with the boss key. Daniel, I know you definitely have more to say about the, uh, the sort of phase structure, so besides the ancient cistern, uh, what other... Besides the ancient cistern, and you covered we covered this Skyview Temple. Uh, what other ones come to mind? Oh, well, the other one is uh, the sand ship. Uh, the yeah, the sand ship with the time shift zones. Uh, yeah, and let me think of that. So that one is <clears throat> again. You know, this is you know this podcast is, is really going to test our memory, isn't it? Um, so if we have a look at the uh, so in the desert in the first... with the with the time shift zones, you know, there's a lot of organic, you know, moving the um, sort of item based state changes where you're holding the time shift zone and you're moving it around and doing stuff with it. In the sand ship, um, what's interesting is that you uh, is that sort of you go through all the floors and then you get right to the bottom of the ship, sort of like in the belly of the beast. And then you're kind of stuck and you, and you don't know what to do, but you know, but there's this, in this one room, you know, there's uh, there's a hole in the ceiling and there's all this light shining in. And if you look up through there, you can see a time shift zone, which is attached to the mast of the ship. And so from what, from the, from two floors into the, sh so from, yeah, from two uh, from the second basement floor of the ship, you then fire an arrow that goes all the way through, you know, up above on the mast, and then that changes the state of the ship, which then allows you to access other areas. I'm just thinking, though, in in the sand ship, are there also time like are there also the time shift zones that you can move about, or is that only in the mining facility? I feel like there is a puzzle in the sand ship that involves putting them on the conveyors. I may have that mixed up with the one in Skykeep that does that instead because it is the sand ship variation. Hmm. I mean, um, regardless, you know, the unique, um, the unique uh, gimmick in, in the sand ship is that 
is that you've got this state change, but the state change happens by the player um, engaging, like um, collapsing the space between the floors, which is a really um, sort of clever kind of uh, way to engage the player with space. And, and we see kind of you know, lots of examples in Skyward Sword of different dungeons doing unique, clever things with space particularly uh, vertical space. And I know that there's a few good examples of that with the beetle, especially. I think on the beetle really um, enables that uh, enables that to happen, yeah. The, uh, as well as the, uh, the mole mitts as well, uh, allowing the player to go underground as well, especially in the fire sanctuary. So, uh, Adrian, you were talking before how, you know, before we were recording, <laughs> about how uh, in uh, about how the beetle is used um, in conjunction with these sort of nooks and crannies and hidden passages to um, to just add more detail and layers to some of the environments, especially um, especially uh, vertically. Yeah, accessing things you can't reach, accessing areas that you can't, gaps that you can't travel across. Uh, that's one of the first things they do in the uh, Skyview Temple, whereas you needed to hit a, a Sky, yeah, Skyview. Okay, Skykeep, Skyview, I gotta make sure not to mix them up. In the Skyview Temple, where you use it to go across this room with the that has a big bottomless pit in order to, I believe it's to knock down one of the vines that you can't normally hit with your slingshot. There's another example in the Earth Temple where most of the times when you get obstructed because like there's a big fence where you're rolling on the boulder so you have to use the beetle to fly into the door around and then hit the switch to take the door down. Cool, Really cool moments like that that um, you normally are not able to do. Um, and in the example with the, sorry you said the Earth Temple? Yeah, that was the Second. Earth Temple. Yep. Yeah, so if I'm right, it's like first you send in on the beetle to move through an area and then activate a switch, which opens the door for you then to go through that passage. Is that right? And then you go through, um, and then you travel through his link. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's on the right-hand side. And so that's kind of interesting as well because that combines this, um, you know, the player approaches one section of the dungeon um, more than once and each time they approach it they do it in a different way and so you know this is a sort of uh, you know, a, a, a design trend in Skyward Sword where uh, more utility is squeezed out of the level design especially the overworld as uh, so not overworld but the um, so not in the sky but in the like in the main in the main three environments you know where there's a lot of layering um, and on the beetle is sometimes used as a as a function of uh, as a way to facilitate that kind of um, layered design. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that touches upon one of the topics, one of the questions I wanted to bring up, and what we also talked about before starting the podcast, which was the sort of design principles for this game's dungeons that 
are unique to it and not quite to the same extent in the past Zelda games and what you touched on there being the, the density thing we've all probably have seen the Iwata Ask where that was a, a core principle uh, that guided the design of this game and another thing like uh, when you count so actually this is another thing that I remembered so one that I brought up earlier was before recording was that there the maps themselves do not have a lot of rooms to them uh, I'm sorry, do not have a lot of floors to them. So the entire ancient cistern can be represented in two floors, which is one of the few exceptions. The entire Skyview Temple is just one floor. Earth Temple, one floor. The Linear Mining Facility, one floor. But that doesn't mean they don't have verticality to them. So that's the, the important distinction I want to make is like a lot of the maps, with the exceptions of, you know, like one part of the fire sanctuary and the sand ship in general all of it can be put on one floor but they have a lot going on in them and then the other one was that when you actually count the rooms the ones that you can actually consider as rooms you know that have the little yellow bars to distinguish them there's not a whole lot of rooms in this game so compared mm -hmm. to something like say twilight princess or some rooms in ocarina of times where there's as many as like uh, 20 rooms in Skyward Sword, you're looking more like 12. 12 or 10. Something something really low like that. I was also under the initial impression that the dungeons in Skyward Sword were a bit shorter, but I might have been wrong on that. Uh, it sure, certainly yeah, felt that a, way to me. Yeah, it's a, you know, that's a real big uh, question, I think. You know, because we experience things in certain ways, and the types of games are so very different and the, what's in the dungeons like it's very difficult to compare um you know very complex things but um but yeah, i certainly found that i found for me as a player you know that verticality um as it does out in the overworld overworld being the three main environments you know that verticality requires a lot more looking and it requires a lot more uh, demands on the play in terms of understanding the space that they're in and so when you take that verticality and you combine it with this you know, more organic um, structures you know so more like you know, in the first Zelda game on the NES you know every room is like a box but if we look at um, at Skyward Sword you know there's a mixture of very rigid man-made rooms with like you know squares and perfect circles and then we have this kind of like you know very um more organic more natural uh, room shapes as well and, and and i think when you put in that mix of different room structures in with the verticality just understanding the environment is uh, is is much more complex um, whereas, like you know, say in Ocarina of Time, you enter a room, you can pretty much see you know, the four corners of the room very easily, and you just know it's a box, and it's very easy to operate. Whereas, you know, the rooms here are a lot more demanding, and the player has to do more to you know to get their bearings and then work through that space. Hence, you know, items like the beetle, which allow the player to you know to explore on the room quite freely without much risk and and also you know, um, uh, you know the developers tease out that verticality by you know, as we've discussed adding those nooks 
in terms of like secret channels or even just you know putting a few rupees you know at the top of a ledge high up so that the player will spot it and then they can then use you know uh, use on the beetle to collect on the rupees so there's a lot of like nip and tuck little micro um interactions that you can have throughout on the dungeon which i think ultimately i think ultimately you know that helps to um um helps to appease i mean not appease but uh, let's say engage a wider variety of players you know so players like us you know we can play through on the game and you know there's uh and we can you know we can beat on the dungeon we can unlock all of the chests and there's more you know i think there's more optional chests in the dungeons but you know we can uh beat the dungeon get all the chests and we can get all the rupees and all the hidden extras that don't really count for much but they're a nice treat for the you know for people like us who um you know uh, um uh who've played on the other games in the series and who can and who are more willing to explore um, as opposed to other players who are just you know who might be more new to the series and are just focused on getting through the dungeon um yeah so <laughs> so there's a lot going on in these rooms even though there aren't that many of them yeah and yeah and the sandship uh definitely the standout example where it may not seem like it because you know it is the the one dungeon that i mentioned was an exception but it does have multiple floors but it is also the one that is the most unique in its structure in 3d space and that you can go on top and get down below and do what you mentioned earlier about how about shooting through the floor slash ceiling of the boat above to hit the time stone that's in the mast as well as go down in the side back inside the ship again uh <laughs> that's the most use of a 3D space and kind of a precursor. Actually, yep. Um, like, yeah, the time shift stone from inside the ship is pretty remarkable. But um, if you want to talk about uh, how vertical the game gets, just that sequence when you're going through the deck and uh, there's all the bacoblins shooting at you from the masts. Um, that in itself is pretty cool and. Uh, you're you're like walking from mast to mast, all the like way up above the deck below. Yeah, actually, there's there's another cool thing, not just in how it's structured in 3D space and how interconnected the the paths and the ship are, but also just like the first time you're going down through, you go past all like three of the floors in order to get to that one uh, room near the bottom. So. That's another like really neat structure where you can see you can go past all the rooms. You can see almost all the rooms in the game before you can actually go in them. That's that's usually not how a lot of other Zelda dungeons are uh, structured, where you can see most of the locked doors before you can get into them. Usually, there's uh, another area that you go through before you can see them. It, it's very kind of like a water temple in that way. If, yeah, and that's oh, and that's really interesting, right? Because it's like <clears throat> I know for me, you know, because you know of the Warrior book and all this folded level design stuff that I'm somewhat familiar with. You know, I'm just going through this level, and I'm like, 
hey, this is strange. Like I'm walking past all of this, you know, all of these um, things, you know, all these game elements and other you know, bits and pieces that I clearly will have to interact with later. And it's like for you know for players like us who've played through you know through other games and are quite experienced, um, it's like you know you're walking through and you're like noticing all these bits you know, and in the back of your mind you're thinking. I wonder what they're going to do with this when I eventually get around to doing it, like, you know, to engaging with these game elements. And then, you know, and then you go and do all this other stuff. And then later on, your your curiosity is kind of uh, rewarded in the sense that you can see how, um, how you can engage with these elements, but it doesn't happen in quite the same way or in the same order that you, you know, that you imagine that it will. And that's a really um, subtle but clever um, use of psychology, and um, which is all done simply through the nature of the level design. Yeah, it is. I, I guess I hope I'm not wrong in saying this. It's it's almost a structure that I would expected more out of like the first Resident Evil than <laughs> your typical Zelda dungeon. Well, it's like when. Uh... If you see a dead guy laying on the floor in Resident Evil and you leave the room, well, you know you're coming back to that room because that guy's got to wake up and attack you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very much like at, at the belly of the beast, you know, when you're, like, you um, you move, um, uh, as you're moving through an environment, you, you notice things which are then going to, going to catch you out later, which really fits in well with a, with a horror-based context. I mean, I guess it is kind of, um, you know, the the pirate captain is pretty scary. Scurvo. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I mean, you know, the zombies in this game, in the ancient uh, Cistern, which super surprised me. I couldn't believe they put in, like, zombie um, bobbikins. <laughs> yeah, why not yeah. Reedits? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, Reedits. Oh, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> Reeds are scarier, aren't they? Because you know, of that, you know, that terrifying shriek they let out. <laughs> yeah, and there's nothing quite as uh, disturbing as the dead hand in Ocarina. <laughs> the other thing, actually, that ties in with the sand ship is, so you go, you know, all the way through to you know, roundabout on the bottom. You activate the time shift um, stone, and then, if I remember right, you go, like the design isn't quite folded in the sense of you know, you go to the bottom floor and then you go back up on the way you came isn't it the case where you and again you know like another memory test but you go down to the bottom floor you activate the time shift zone and then is it at that point that you then can take the ship like the like the lifeboat attached to the outside of the ship like you can take that back up to the to the uh, to the deck, or do you do that later on? I think you do that later on. If I remember what it is, is by activating the time shift stone first. The one that comes on the mast, a Bokoblin will shove his sword and close it. So that's where you know you need to make your way back up there. But before you get back up there, I believe you have to fight. There's a room that you pass by that's near the top of the ship, 
but you can't go into it because you're in the present. So by turning it back into the past, you can go into that room, fight Skurvo, then get your bow and arrow, and then make your way up there to reveal the to reopen the time shift zone so that you can use it to do uh, the trick with the the boat on the side later because you you need the bow in order to even uh, hit the thing that lowers it mm. and that's interesting right because it's like um it's interesting because they give you you know like you move through the space in diff um in different ways but then they don't just repeat that again like they actually provide you a shortcut um mm -hmm. which you know, which has you then engage with us, uh, with the, uh, which again varies your movement path through the uh, through the dungeon, and it also you know is a effective shortcut. Yeah. And 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 so with all that, you know, my original point was how um, there's use of inside and outside environments as well, and this, and the whole lifeboat shortcut encapsulates the way in which um skyward sword combines along with all the other stuff you know about the you know, different structures of rooms and that it also has more interior and exterior mixing and matching which mm -hmm. we see used very effectively here uh, in in the sandship dungeon but also in the fire sanctuary i think yeah, yeah there's a bit going on in the fire sanctuary but I think that's, I don't... It, it, it's not quite to the same extent, um, but it does allow you, what happens is, you know, that part where you skydive into that way lower area, which is, actually, I was about to say that uh, something that wouldn't happen if it wasn't for the interior exterior thing, but then I think about it, like, actually, you could do skydiving in a totally interior dungeon, so that's not entirely true. Hmm. In any case, you know, it does add some uh, aesthetic variety and it does allow for different... Mm. Mm. I don't. You know, I want to say it allows for different kinds of level structures, but that might, not that might not necessarily be the case. But I think that the ultimately the effect that that has is quite significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even from a, even quite simply from the way in which the player understands the environment and mentally organizes the dungeon into a schema, like thinking of some parts as outside, some parts as inside, it it, it it's another wrinkle of, um um, it's another sort of wrinkle to get your head around. Yeah, so we co so right now just to recap, we covered the two phase design. I think we already brought up that there's a. Did we bring up how there's like a large circular room and almost a large in every dungeon there's a large circular room that acts as a hub? No, no, we didn't really talk about that too much. Okay, this is actually a point that uh, Greg brought up then before we even started the podcast. So, Greg, you want to go through that? Um, the sorry, the hubs, right? Mm hmm. So, uh, the Skyview Temple, the first temple, um, introduces you to the, or introduces the idea of hub rooms where, um, after a short passage, you enter into a room where there's a path forward and you can't immediately access it, 
Instead, you have to travel through an east passage and then a west passage, uh, finally collecting all the things you needed to go uh, to progress north, um, which leads you to a second hub where there are is once again an east hub and a or an east spoke and a west spoke that you have to travel through to make it yet farther for um, yet farther north, um, and that hub idea I associate more with Majora's Mask but um, uh, yeah, certainly it, it's used in a lot of the dungeons here um, and it's uh, you know you could say that the the deck of the sand ship is kind of a hub because you have to shoot the time shift stone and you do it from different perspectives mm-hmm. um, but I think what most people consider to be the most remarkable use of a hub is the ancient cistern, which um, I think Daniel and you were already have already explained earlier in the podcast, where um, you know you have the above ground hub, where you have to walk around to get a whip and then uh, play around with a statue, and then you have the below ground hub where you have to explore. Um, once with the statue up and once with the statue down and uh, you have those two hubs but what makes that remarkable is that the two hubs interact with each other that the statue in one hub is the same statue that's in a different hub Um, and so it actually kind of brings back to mind the uh, the fire temple from the from Ocarina of Time, where you go through the whole dungeon, and at the very end you knock a block back down to the bottom, so that you can progress near the beginning of the dungeon. Um, except here, it's a, a statue that the entire dungeon is designed around, and you've been kind of looking at uh, the whole and running around the whole time. Yeah, I think the this hub based the, or the hub and spoke based design ultimately facilitates like the more layered um, movement patterns where the player is moving through particular rooms. In this case, the hub multiple times, which I think explains why um, some of these hub environments are quite rich in terms of well, say Skyview. If we take Skyview Temple's uh, Northern Hub, uh, the Dome Room, for example, like there's a lot of like extra, you know, like there's enemies, you know, there's enemies, there's the hidden, um, uh, the hidden passages at the top which you can access with a beetle. There's like, like rupees everywhere. You know? So there's lots of little trinkets and other things in these in some of these hubs, which the player might not find the first time through, but they can find them as they continue on to move through that environment multiple times, which is, yeah, which is similar to what happens with folded level design in a way. It kind of, it also, I think, has uh, an effect on my personal gameplay that I find hard to uh, really put my finger on because on one hand um, 
you know, because the rooms are more densely populated with stuff to touch, um, naturally it's easy to look around and not immediately know what to do. Like, there's not any kind of... Or, not that there's no kind of indication, but more that the details distinguishing paths are more subtle. And so there's that. But on the flip side, um, these rooms are more densely populated because we aren't dealing with small keys or switches or whatever. Like, in the ancient cistern, you fumble around upstairs and you come across a whip, and suddenly that gives you a different way to interact with the birds and the switches and the... The lily pads. Lily pads, thank you. And so uh, the rooms are more complicated in part because you have ways of interacting with the environment that are um, signaled in a way other than just, like, this door's got a lock on it. Like, um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's it can be easy to take the whip and reduce it to, like, okay, here's just another key that you put in a lock and then you do whatever. But, um, you know, just because of its, uh, just by the nature of it being diegetically a whip, you can recognize what it will, what it can do in the environment. And, you know, maybe you only have a binary interaction with a lily pad, but you can still read the level design, and that informs, uh, what branches you've opened up. And so, uh, that's what I find hard to put my finger on and is that in on one hand the environment becomes a little more vague and harder to read but on the other hand you get all of these uh, clues in to uh, you know feed your decision making mm. so yeah yeah I think that's a an interesting um, an interesting idea and it's really uh, yeah, and this is the thing which frustrates me about talking about Skyward Sword is that there's so many quite advanced um, design aspects um, in all areas, and, and in particularly the level design. And when those, and when the different forces layer together, it creates an experience which can be quite difficult to articulate. Which is, and, and I certainly feel I'm the same way. I think sort of what you're saying. Um, Greg is really, I guess, two, two or three things. I guess the first is that because um, many of the hubs and other rooms are quite multifunctional, they inherently become harder to read because they have multiple functions. And so, with the increased functionality of the rooms, some of the pathing, let's say, you know, pathing or direction, but it becomes harder to <clears throat> immediately realize however because of the use of form fits function and the very functional nature of the game and the consistent logic within the game it's very easy to intuit certain interactions um and intuit what you should be doing on the other hand going back to the original point it is quite 
it's still quite challenging to understand the environments because they are complex in terms of their verticality and their inorganic spacing, but also because some of those prompts are not simple locks and keys, but they're more baked into the environment. So, so so I guess what you're saying is there are parts of the design which help and which inherently, uh, there are parts of the design which make it easier and also somewhat more challenging to very effectively move through the environment. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, that also uh, kind of answers, kind of answers uh, what we were uh, conflict me and Daniel had earlier about whether or not these dungeons are shorter or shorter or not. And I think the reason for that is actually because of what's going on here, where it's like technically yes, there's fewer rooms, but because uh, certain dungeons more so than others have so much more going on in them, it can take you much longer to actually read and sort through everything that's there and understand where some rooms are relative to other rooms, especially when it's required for progressing. I would be curious... I don't even know what it would take to answer this question, but, like, is there a game that you could point to and say, this is like Skyward Sword, except um, with... This is like Skyward Sword, where the rooms are multifunctional, uh, but instead of having organic interactions that... Uh, and I mean organic in the sense that you can look at them and kind of intuit how they should work. Uh, instead, these dungeons just have a lot of um, switches you have to press in the right order, and so it you don't have that same intuition about it. Metroid? Super Metroid? I mean, that has the organic... Mm, that's hard to say. That's really hard. That's a really hard question. <laughs> yeah, none. Because yeah, you know, like, yeah, you know, I was gonna say, well, Super Metroid, right? But then, in the sense, I feel the fact that Super Metroid, uh, that because Super Metroid and the two D Metroid games take place in two D space, that that in and of itself simplifies the play. Uh, <laughs> well, reduces the amount of work that the player has to invest in order to understand the environments. But at the same time, I also feel like saying I don't, I sort of feel like maybe that organic lock and key aspect isn't quite as significant a force as you say that it is. Because in the sense, there's still rooms, there's still locks and keys, um, even though the more organic versions of that, like sending the beetle around on the corner to flick a switch that you can't really see yet. Um, although, um, so in saying what I'm saying, those more organic, um, lock and key elements can trip, uh, can still trip the player up in terms of the way that's scaffolded and, and the player is directed to those elements. Oh, that's very complex. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Adrian, um, can you think of, of, of such a game? No, I can't, but that's also because not a lot of games are made like Zelda or try to even do the Zelda dungeon thing. I could maybe think of... But you know... Sorry. I was going to say, I can maybe think of games that 
uh, and the thing is, like, I haven't played them, so I don't know if Darksiders might be like that, might be guilty of things like that. I don't know if Tomb Raider might be guilty of some things like that. I just don't know. So, I can't really so say. So, Dan- Daniel brought up Super Metroid, and then I was thinking, well, 3D Metroid is Metroid Prime, and that's a game where you need the scan visor just to even, like... Like, you don't need the scan visor to help you know what to do. Like, you literally have to do... Uh, have to flick some switches using your scan visor. So that's... Looking back, that feels like now... Uh, here's an environment that's so uh, complicated that we needed to give you a button to see what the switches are. Mm, mm, absolutely. Yeah, it's like uh... an overlay. It's like uh, the Batman... Uh, Batman... The Batman uh, Arkham Asylum games, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, actually, that might be a similar... Um, I mean, that might be the game that we're talking about, which, unfortunately, I haven't played and I really want to play. But I know that in that game, you have quite dense, you know, both in terms of, like, nooks and crannies and, you know, things to explore and collect, but also visually. So you've got, you know, very dense environments that are somewhat layered, or that have a sort of open worldy, well, like a small scale open world with lots of layering. Like, you know, that seems like a game that actually fits your description. Um, although I'm not sure about the locks and keys in that game, but look, I think just ultimately um, you know, this conversation just speaks to the point of how challenging it is for people to uh, understand uh, understand 3D space. And particularly in the more um, in the more complex environments, uh, such as you know some of these rooms uh, in the dungeons. Yeah. Never mind it's... the pacing of challenges in room to room and throughout the dungeon. It's worth noting that um, I think the opening to Skyview Temple is super memorable. Where uh, to even get in, you need to use the um <clears throat> to even get in you need to use the slingshot to shoot a switch that is out of your view because the camera points down and you need to go uh, into yeah. the slingshot view and look up i think that's like that's the perfect opening to this game <laughs> yeah you know and that actually makes you that. think that um you know that example and and others sort of make you think that if any other, um, you know, if you had, so if you take these environments and you strip away all that good quality Nintendo design in terms of scaffolding and, you know, you know, and, you know, the sort of test, teach, test example we talked about just then with the, you know, with the slingshot, if you took all of that away, this game would be terrible. (laughs) You know, some people say it already is terrible. And and that's the other thing, right? You know, and I think what they're actually saying is, damn, it's really hard to understand these environments, and um, and I didn't have the mindset slash the game wasn't quite able to cushion my experience enough for me to engage with what is a very uh, you know very advanced and very uh, to engage with something that is quite advanced and complex, and I think that. The unfortunate thing is that people who or, or people who play games perhaps wouldn't think that the things that we're talking about, you know, 
make a game complex like it's just seen as it's it's just taken for granted but i think that as we've discussed these things can be very uh, very challenging in and of themselves just understanding the 3d environment don't understand how how difficult that is and so i feel that in a way um my overall feeling about the level design the skyward sword i guess overall is that you know from you know from someone who likes to you know analyze games i you know i feel like it's a highly like it's very satisfying and 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 as a player that often rings true as well however at the same time i also feel like damn you know this design is so hot it's so good but then i also feel on the other hand like oh man it's a bit it's a bit complicated it's a bit harder to appreciate it is asking a lot of men and is it a good thing i I don't think so you know that's an interesting question like like is like yeah like i mean what do you guys think how would you answer that is it a I mean, I love it, but at a certain point, I'm like, oh, I just felt tired as well. Um, and that was my reaction to it. But how do you guys feel? Like, do you think that the all these advanced aspects of design, do they pay off ultimately for you? Oh, for me, absolutely. And mm. I, long ago, I remember gushing about the, the dungeons in Majora's Mask because of how I had to understand them in 3D space and you need to in order to even progress through the game. I remember taking quite a long time in the Snow Peak dungeon because of that <laughs> when you're like, okay, come down to understand like that central hub structure and then go in and around the rooms so that cuz as you lower those little ice blocks, they actually block the ways you would normally enter the rooms. So then you have, so you have to use the 3D space and the like side rooms to actually scale up and go into the ones uh, higher up the floor so you can keep building that uh central tower so you can get to the final final boss room i remember that was that was such a cool last moment then of course you have the great bay temple which also had that similar structure so i love that kind of stuff stuff like that mm-hmm. stuff like link to the past the skull woods you go outside of the dungeon back into the old world and fall into a different place that i love that stuff so yeah to me this is like yeah, I, I don't think I don't think it's I don't think it has hit the point of it being too dense. I I still think it's all readable. Naturally, some players aren't don't have the skill for that because you brought up like Craig made it like a, a jest earlier about how oh some people think this game sucks. It's like yeah, some some of people <laughs> just don't even like 3D Zelda. Period. So it's like to them, it's like whatever. And the people that uniquely don't like Skyward Sword from my experience has more to do with a because they're butthurt about munch controls they will never like it so that's just their rigidity uh and also just because ill linearity because i can't do the dungeons or whatever order i want it's like that's stupid you're stupid get out of here well <laughs> I, I noted that many people could learn to use motion controls and don't bother but there is you know a genuine accessibility gap there oh oh Right, that naturally fewer people will be able to operate the uh, directional swinging than can just operate 
a simple joystick. A simple joystick. Not that like not that like uh, not to excuse uh, not to excuse people who could learn to use could learn to use directional swinging and just can't and just can't be bothered to learn a new control scheme. But that you know there does exist the person who simply can't. Oh, okay, yeah. Wait, 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 Greg. Aren't aren't you the guy who did that video uh, a few years ago, like about why Waggle is bad? <laughs> well, it, well, actually, as as the as defined in the video, the Skyward Sword doesn't use Waggle. <laughs> I'm just trolling. <laughs> I, initially, I thought you were gonna push. I, I wasn't expecting you to push back on the motion controls as for like, say, people who have, um, like, say. I don't know, tendonitis or arm impingement or whatever other things that their arms aren't as, or even their wrists aren't as good as their fingers. I was actually expecting you to push back more on the, the linearity thing, because, you know, mm. how you can do some some of the dungeons in Ocarina of Time out of order, or just how you can just, oh, I'm just going to go around and dig around in the overworld for eight hours before I even continue with the game. And Skyward Sword, you can't quite do that as much, but uh, that's like the part where it's like, man, I don't care i'm more gameplay focused and to me like that's just one part of the game that it changes throughout every single zelda game so trying to act, expect that to be the same through every game is just uh being irrational and unrealistic mm. in any case back to the dungeons yes yes <laughs> one thing uh, i also noticed that i brought up before the recording was the use of these not item puzzles, I, I kind of describe them as more adventure puzzles, but they definitely, especially the one in the Ancient Cistern, play to the aspect of looking around the environment, gathering clues that you need in order to progress. I keep going back of whether or not of calling it a puzzle, because it's just like looking for the numbers to dial a code in, but it's still one of those just like really neat things that I, that I like a lot. Uh, one example was the ancient cistern. You go um, through the hands. The stone tablet tells you the order of the hands, and when you go to each of the hands, they have the little dial switch that you're supposed to hit with your sword that are that usually act as a lock on a room. It shows you which ones that you hit, and you when you actually get into the room that has it that is not in that central hub room, you hit it in that order that you saw it in. Um, that's not something I normally see in other Zelda dungeons and or other Zelda games. So, yeah, that was just something um, I thought was curious about Skyward Sword. I I feel like some of that went over my head as we discussed earlier, but <laughs> fortunately, I don't wish to elaborate. So, <laughs> um, well, huh. I already know it's the ancient cistern one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so quickly, just uh, changing the topic slightly. <clears throat> um, in terms of the hub, like the circular hub design that we talked about uh, just earlier, I, you know, I sort of noticed that in yeah, that in the earlier dungeons, especially Skyview Temple and the Earth Temple, that each of the spokes that move off of the hub are quite short so if you look at the earth temple for example you know that center um you know that center room area you know you know so there's like the first room you know which is just like sort of linearish, and then there's the second room which we arrive at which is like the hub to the left 
there's um, yeah, there's an individual room. To the bottom right, there's an individual room. To the top right, there is you know what could be an individual room, and then there's you know, and then it continues on from there. And so connected to the hub are basically the so the spokes are individual rooms, kind of similar in Skyview Temple as well. Although there's two hubs, and you know, but the spokes aren't very long. And then you get to uh, the mining facility, where you've sort of got two hubs which feed into each other. You've got the southern one, which is the T-shape, and then you've got the northern one, which is that large, um, you know, that large rectangular room with the uh, with the mine carts. And so the two spokes feed into the two different hubs. The ancient cistern is kind of like you know it has pretty short. Uh, pretty short spokes the sand ship is different and then we get to like the fire sanctuary which is like you know, all sorts of crazy like it's kind of like <laughs> linearish but like a real like a real squiggle of a movement path through the environment um and i just thought it was interesting how over the course of the dungeons um although the hub and spoke design remains somewhat consistent um, the Fire Sanctuary in particular has a very, uh, hmm, uh, it felt distinct to me in that the, it, it's sort of paced by how far the key is from where you need it. The first key is in the room you need it. The second key is one room away. Um, the third one is three rooms away. And then the boss key then is like right next to the room where you need it. Hmm. Didn't know that. I was gonna say that. Um, looking over all these maps again, I can see the <coughs> sort of see more of a progression of the dungeons. Probably, probably barring the fire sanctuary, though, in terms of complexity, because the fire sanctuary is actually a uh, much more linear than the map blitz on. It's actually a big kind of S. It's sort of like, sorry, just jumping. It's sort of like linear, but there's kind of like little loops. Yeah. They have short. Yeah, those little loops are the <clears throat> ones where you like venture out to get a key and then return. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, there, it also has the shortcuts to, you know, take you back to earlier levels without having to go all the way through back. Uh, the the uh, curve of the S again. Um, but yeah, that's why the sand ship is uh, such a highlight. And the last dungeon, of course, is it's is the one that does not follow that hub, hub and spoke structure. That one's the most uh, non-linear one. And I told you this guys earlier, but there's an entire room in that dungeon I did not do when I completed it. I was wondering about that. I did all the rooms, and I was wondering if the puzzle was strict enough that they could uh, force you to go through all the different rooms. The answer to that is no. Mm-hmm. So as long as you can connect the rooms, you can do it. Which means you can do them in whatever order you can shuffle them in. Including. That was so cool. Yeah. It's really interesting how, like, so originally, you know, I was thinking, 
as I was playing through the dungeons, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, while wow, these dungeons are quite layered, what's the final dungeon going to be like? And actually, <laughs> the final, <laughs> and then on the final dungeon, it just sidesteps. Well, it seemingly sidesteps the other, like that layered design, although not really. It just does it in a completely different way. And you've got like the, like on the base level, it's like a regular dungeon. But then there's a higher level where it's like, it's a three by three grid and it's a sliding block. So it's a three by three grid. And one of the, let's say the bottom left um, square is missing. And it's basically a sliding block puzzle. So there's like this meta level game of the sliding block puzzle. And then there's like the regular dungeon. And by virtue of you having to solve a sliding block puzzle, you you engage with, or you go through the level, uh, through the individual rooms in many different ways. And so it is kind of layered. Oh, well, sorry, I mean, you go through them uh, several times. And so it is kind of layered in a strange way, but the layering is player generated which I guess is basically like you know, what they call level design heaven. It's uh, interesting. Um, I, don't, I don't... A lot of the interactions in Zelda I don't think have, like, uh, don't, don't have compelling, compelling failure states. states. Like, like, you know, you if, if you put, put a bomb, bomb next to a cracked wall, wall the, the worst, worst that can happen is that the crack doesn't, doesn't open up. up. Um, but the sliding block puzzle gives you, like, like it's, it's really strict how you put rooms together. Um, and, and I think, I think it's, it's a, a compelling puzzle because it's, like, um, I just found it difficult to even figure out how to put the things together. And so, um, you know, typically in a Zelda game, um, as long as, as long as you collect, collect all the keys and try all the keys and all the doors, you can get, get through. through. And the sliding, and the block, sliding puzzle block puzzle defeats that approach because um, you can't, you know, well, you, you could, could go, go through, through every iteration of how the sliding block puzzle works, but then you might be there for a couple million years. <laughs> I think it's probably the height of the, of the level design in the game. Yeah, it's the dungeon where because you go through these rooms and only... I believe two of them actually have the sliding block that allows you to change them. How you use one to arrange the rooms, including the one that allows you to arrange them again. And I don't know how to finish this statement, but yeah, well, hopefully you can get the idea of why this dungeon uh, can become so complicated. If you had the ability to just arrange the rooms whenever you wanted, this would have been much more straightforward, but you can't, and that's what makes it <laughs> a lot more difficult to... Uh, to get through, understanding all the rooms re relative to the other rooms, making sure, and because each room has the pathways to connect them, it's not as simple as like, oh, just put the room next to the one that I want, and I'll go through. It's like, no, they have to actually have both doors facing each other. So what you probably try to be doing is trying to get through as many of the rooms as you can in one go to get all the stuff without having to uh, go back to or into. Uh, yeah, without having to go back to the room to re reorient them uh, too many times. Mm. It's almost like a sliding block 
puzzle, but you can make two or three pictures. Yeah. Because you you, right. you can't you can't move the one that you're already in, which is the one that lets you even move them to begin with. I guess to uh, to wrap up the point I made earlier about uh, the more adventure-y kind of puzzles that I don't see very often in other Zelda games, it's the stuff like you see the tablet, it tells you you know left hand, bottom right hand, and top left hand or whatever and you go through and you see the little symbols up along the hands which is necessary for a code you need to put in a totally different room to continue with the game uh, there was one in the sand ship where you blow out the sand you see these symbols on the ground which you use to open another door that's like that where you have to slice it in the correct sequence there's the fire two in the fire sanctuary that I can recall one is where the Magma tells you you need to jump into the statue where the eyes I forget if it's supposed to be the one that's asleep or awake, but you have to But you have to take note of the which of the eyes and that's the real one you're supposed to jump into uh, Just a simple memory test so when you get into the latter part of the dungeon you skydive onto the to the one where its tongue comes out and then you continue and then the part where you go underground with the magma mitts and you have to light these totem poles uh, in order from the least amount of wings to the most, and it doesn't, well, it, at first I thought it didn't even tell you that, and you're just supposed to observe and make use of what you can see right in front of you to, uh, figure out what it is that you need to do, but then I remember reading Jonathan's article, and I was like, oh, wait, actually, there's a stone tablet right there that actually tells you what to do, so that kind of sucked. <laughs> uh, otherwise, that's actually a really cool thing, these sort of environment puzzles, uh, that you have in Skyward Sword, where it's just like make use of it's kind of and it's also goes back to that uh, one that I was talking about Daniel in the second Killer Seven podcast about like making use of what little details you can see to uh, figure out uh, what the the code is or uh, the sequence of things that it is you need to do. Mm. Yeah, it's a very unique challenge to the Zelda games, isn't it? So just to, maybe just to wrap up, um, I mean, I've got a list here of things we've discussed, um, but did you guys have any more ideas of things we haven't touched upon yet? In terms of things we haven't touched upon, uh, no, not really. If there was one thing that I would like to have looked into more, it's the, the use of the items uh, in each of the dungeons in Skyward Sword compared to other Zelda games because one of the things that I want to say but do not have full confidence in saying is that I think in Skyward Sword you actually use the items much more frequently than in other Zelda games and the reason for that is because you can switch to them so quickly so as whereas other dungeons and other Zelda games may limit you to a handful barring Majora's Mask because it doesn't care <laughs> um, yeah, you would always be stuck with, like, saying, using at most three items. Switching among three items, but because in Skyward Sword, you can switch to all of them fairly quickly without having to open the start menu and equipping them all the time, it is much more free to use uh, five or six items. Um, 
but again I haven't actually gone through all the dungeons counted up how many times they used them to uh, make that conclusion just yet mm. that's what I felt and then like, you've though. got the and then you've got the optional challenges. <laughs> um, uh, you've got the optional challenges as well, so that's quite a bit of data to crunch. Yeah. Yeah. I would want to um, look at the use of stamina in dungeons. Stamina just permeates the game, um, and so I think that would be an interesting thing to investigate. Oh. I already know a few examples of some of that. There's that one ramp in the Earth Temple that you have to run up while it's dropping the boulders and make sure you don't run out of stamina, so you have to go into these little alcoves before you tire out and slide back down. There's also Yeah, and then you got to roll the bombs on those hills, too. Yeah, so that's another cool use of the, the fact that the bombs are spheres and they're affected by and their physics objects so they roll down surfaces which is not something you saw in other Zelda games with the the bombs the bombs didn't roll like that so that's another cool thing unique to Skyward Sword um, there's also that part in the same temple where the boulder comes down and you run away from it Indiana Jones style that's another <laughs> use of dashing also of course Skaldir himself that's a boss that features dashing when you try to run up and down the ramp I'm not sure that ramp costs stamina. It doesn't cost stamina. bombs stamina, don't roll but, on it. You know, if you want to move fast, you use the thing that makes you move fast. Yeah, okay. The, obviously, there's the fire sanctuary, the part where the lava comes out. You have to dash in order to get away to, from the lava coming in and burning you alive. Mm. Terr- terrifying thought when you think about it. And mm-hmm. there's another. You technically don't use stamina underwater, you just use breath, so it doesn't count. No, that counts. uh, Okay, it sort of counts. (laughs) There's the conveyors in the sand ship that you run along, and they have the little... That's in the mining mining facility, facility. too, isn't it? Yeah, it's in both of them where they have the conveyors, and sometimes they have the green fruit come out, so you have to make sure to pick them up while you're trying to get to the other side of them so they don't, like... uh, roll you off yeah. into the bottomless pits so that's a few ways right there that stamina has been incorporated stamina based challenges has been incorporated into the dungeons so many cool things when you can't just go and uh, beat a couple shrines and upgrade your stamina <laughs> Daniel hasn't played Breath of the Wild yet <laughs> Um, we talked about how there's more verticality in the in the dungeon rooms, and there are floors. That's F L O R S floors, which are not represented uh, on the map. Um, we talked about how there's a more uh, there's more of a mix between organic and man-made uh, structures. Oh, sorry, uh, natural and man-made structures within the dungeons. We talked about how there's the interconnection between rooms. So, for example. On, on Sandship, you can fire the arrow from the bottommost floor right up to the mast of the ship. And we talked about how there's more of a mix of inside or of interior and exterior um, environments, such as in the fire sanctuary and Sandship. 
we talked about how the dungeons have uh, well some of the dungeons have a phase phase based gameplay for example uh, the water levels in skyview temple um, the time shift in in the sand ship and also in the mining facility where you've got the time shift um, stones as well and you know and so that's you know based on the player's movement uh, sorry based on the player moving certain um, game elements around the environment um, we talked about skykeep and how it combines all of the different um, uh, all of the different um, aspects of the other dungeon sort of into one but the player can you know, have some control over that um, we talked about the unique ways of moving through the environment uh, such as on the on on the lava crusts and with the uh, with that rotating um, giant ball that link can walk along um, we talk about the multi nature of rooms and how that affects the player's ability to identify cues in the environment and we talked about how um about the hub and spoke design of the levels uh, of the dungeons and how over the course of several dungeons the spokes become more complex so that's everything we talked about all righty <laughs> i think we did a pretty good job i think we did too so next time well, maybe next time you might want to uh, prep a bit more because the overworld is going to be much more challenging uh, to discuss than the dungeons in this game, which is a first for the Zelda series. But in any case, as usual, thank you all for joining me. See you next time. Of course. See ya.